Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is a regular Spectator contributor and favourite, Isenda Maxton Graham, whose new book strikes a nostalgic chord as summer starts to disappear into the rearview mirror, and it's called British Summertime Begins, The School Summer Holidays 1930 to 1980. Isenda, welcome. This is an absolute festival of nostalgia for those of us who went through the British summer holidays at some point in that period. But can I start by asking you about the period? Because I know historians kind of argue back and forth about periodisation and that sort of thing. But your last book had as its cut off the invention of the duvet. (laughs) Yes, I cut this one off at the very first um, computer game, which I think was Binetone Tennis, where you, you hit a little electronic tennis ball over a net. And that was sort of late 1970s. I let the book go on to 1980, just before the personal computer came into our lives. I suppose because that was really when summer, as we knew it, uh, ceased to exist. Because, as I say in the book, these computer games gave you pre-packaged alternative worlds to consume your hours rather than and, and save you having to invent your own. So that was why I cut off in 1980 this time. And 1930 was presumably about as old as you could find somebody who could talk to you about it. Because it's, it's yes. a book of oral... Mm. Yes, or also oral social history, and I did want to be able to talk to people, and I particularly wanted to have people who were nine in 1939, so they would have remembered that dreadful day when it was both the end of summer holidays, bad enough, and war broke out. That must have been a double, a double blow. Exactly. There were, of course, a lot of children during wartime have recalled it as being a sort of very happy period, haven't they? Well, that's the extraordinary thing, and that's what we can talk about in a way, is, is to what extent rose-tinted spectacles make people think it was all very happy. And, and what extent that was the tr- to what extent that was the truth, and even if it is a slightly rose tinted specs, does it suggest that there is a sort of optimism in the human spirit that makes what that edits out the bad memories? Because there was a, there was a kind of overwhelming joy about this book, I have to say, and I was I was searching for melancholy and did find quite a few clods of it, as I say, but there was this general overwhelming sense of sort of as I call it cotton wearing happiness, of people just having incredible freedom. Yeah, tell me a bit about the scope of the book because. You talk about, you know, summer holidays, but you don't mean going abroad type summer holidays. You mean the whole kind of period between school and school. Exactly. The very the great difference between summer holidays and the summer holidays. Exactly. It's that period I felt that hadn't quite been addressed. Those vital two months of every, or perhaps six weeks, some of every child's childhood, year after year. What happened in those sort of unscheduled, probably often unrecorded weeks? I do feel that they were some of the most formative times of our lives, those times when no one was no one was hovering over us, no one was telling us to do our practice, and we were just left to our own devices. And I felt that was perhaps a thing that needed to be examined. And there are buckets and spades aplenty in this book, but that's, they come later, as you see a lot of it, is about stasis, about staying at home, playing in the back garden, just having to make up... Yes, you have this, this phrase, kinetic stasis, which sounds unusually academic, actually, as a phrase for... <laughs> Well, for one of your books. But... <laughs> exactly, because I couldn't bear physics with its kinetic energy. But that, that thing of being in one place but yet somehow managing to stay thin from massive amounts of exercise is what I call kinetic stasis. Going miles, but actually not going anywhere. Going miles on your bike, going round and round the neighbourhood. Kinetic stasis. Yeah. Now, I, one thing that made me wonder as I was reading this, you know, we take as a sort of fixed thing this idea that there is school summer holidays, that there's a sort of period of, as you say, six weeks to eight weeks to even more than that sometimes, 
you know, between the end of the spring term and the beginning of the autumn term. Is that, and I don't know the answer to this, maybe you do, is that a sort of modern invention or is that, I mean, have schools always worked like that? I, I had the impression that longer ago they didn't. The go-between days, of course, you know, that was a real summer holidays, wasn't it? That's where I start the book off with memories of Leo packing his trunk a bit early because there was, wasn't, didn't some illness break out in the school and they were allowed to go home early. And that was 1907, I think. So it's been going for, you know, as I, but I, as for sort of Dr Arnold's time, I think it was going then. But, and of course, we were, when we brought up to remember that the Americans had three months, remember, being told the Americans had three months, they had to go to summer camp, terrifying thought. Yeah, no, um, we, and, we and, didn't have so much of that. No. There is a difference, isn't there, between packing your trunk at the end of the go-between to go away from a boarding school and the children, the majority of children, who went mm. to day schools. Is there a kind of yes. absolute class divide that goes through this book or is it more or less equal once you get home? It is a different experience, and I, I just, I, having written Terms and Conditions, my last book about girls' boarding schools, I very much didn't want this just to be about posh girls in boarding schools. I really wanted it to cover the whole spectrum. And, of course, there were some who'd done a, they'd done a paper round that very morning in, in their, as they did, 300, 364 days a year, and apparently the one they didn't do it on was not Christmas Day, it was New Year's Day. So they were just going home to where the home they'd left that very morning. There wasn't quite the excitement, although day boys I spoke to and day girls say there was, in fact, still a very great difference. Suddenly that day came home, you often came home a bit early on that first day of the holidays. It was lunchtime rather than the afternoon. That just gave a slightly jarring, strange air to, to coming home. And then off came their uniform, off came the itchy clothes, and there was a huge change into that world of freedom. Now, when you talk about this freedom, you know, freedom is a theme. And, and as you say somewhere about the middle of the book, you say a repeated kind of mantra in this book is, you know, our parents had no idea where we were. That does seem extraordinary. When we, I think of how I bring up my children, I know exactly where they are most of the time and have done. And I feel that's a, a real thing that has been lost. And why do you think that's changed? I think partly it is that I think it's certainly that home has become a more dangerous place to be for children. Um, so parents have to keep their days coloured in with activities to keep them away from the screens, which are deadening for their imaginations. So that's why today's middle-class parents book them in for a tennis camp one week and Latin camp the next, or orchestra camp the next, go on an exchange, anything to keep them busy, busy, busy. And stop. Whereas home, I think, used to be a place where you could just go into yourself and invent imaginary countries out on a bit of A4 paper. So you're, you're quite down on screens here. Well, I, I mean, I you said home that, is dangerous. I, yeah. I thought you meant yes. dangerous electronic appliances or gas or something. <laughs> yes, exactly. But you actually mean no. the, the iPad. I meant spiritually, spiritually dangerous, I think, in terms of addiction to phones, really, as well. So that's why there's more urge now to keep people busy with official named activities. It's the unnamedness of the activities which I think are so, so lovely and treasured, where you couldn't quite say what you were doing, but yet you were... I spoke to one man who invented, who made a whole sort of church out of pl plasticine people. You wrapped them, wrapped them up in quality street wrappers and did a whole liturgical world. Um, that's, I, I come across him since I finished the book. Again, no mad thing to be doing, but actually <laughs> he's never forgotten the liturgical calendar since. Yes, and you, you have people playing Sabutio for days at a time. And... <laughs> exactly. On the landing. Had to be the right quality of carpet. Yes. And the... <laughs> exactly. Those things where you just lost yourself. And that's what I think I mean by the spiritual, it's phys spiritual and physical freedom in a way, that you were vanished into these worlds and no one quite knew where you were in your mind as well as, well as your body. And what's interesting in a, a lot of the book is that there is a kind of commonality between the very poor working class people and the toffs, in that both of them seem to have houses in which the front and back doors were open and you just buggered off and your parents didn't know yeah. where you were, you were on your bike, mm. you were in the woods. You were... Yes, 
that's what I loved about this book. And in, in one paragraph, I could mention I could mention a very sort of aristocratic man in a castle in Aberdeenshire and Dennis Skinner running out of his little one-up, one-down in Claycross, Derbyshire, both the open doors being the vital thing. And I say that Dennis Pat had even more freedom because he was going straight into the real world where the aristocrats were going into their private grounds and visiting perhaps a nice builder doing up one of the cottages, but not quite the same as the real engagement with the outside world, which gave Dennis his political awareness from a very young age. Yeah, well, um, I mean, there are what you might call health and safety concerns about all this. I mean, now I think one of the reasons parents want to know where the children are is because they think if they go outside, they will be hit by a bus and knocked off their bike. Mm -hmm. They'll be abducted by 1970s DJs. Mm -hmm. They'll be, you know, falling out of trees and breaking their arms and legs. Do you think this was actually happening? Have we have we developed a paranoia or was it simply that in the old days we just went, well, if we lose a few, we lose a few? Mm. Well, I just don't remember. I mean, there were statistically more car accidents then than there are now. And there were flashes, as I hear quite a few men displayed their erections to passing girls, as I, as I say in the book, and they weren't, we fa- failed to be traumatised, um, was the, the response. I think that probably was just as dangerous. I, I feel there was a sense of more of a gaggle. The children went around in, in gaggles, in posses, and I think parents thought that if they're with their friends, they'll be all right. There wasn't, there, and there really, I think there really must have been more of a sense of safety. There must have been more... Yeah, I'm just wondering how illusory you think that's it. Exactly. Well, I mean, I came across one. I came across one or two deaths, and of course, you know, there were occasional abductions and rapes. But I don't think there was the paranoia, and that is a strange change. We have become more paranoid, and and don't we feel we can just get rid of one, lose one child? Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I, I'm just thinking the sort of paradigmatic yeah. piece of health, health and safety yeah. advice from, mm. from that seems to govern the period of swallows and Amazons is that you know. If not, duffers won't drown. <laughs> exactly, that's right. Yes, that father, father's telegram. <laughs> exactly. Exactly, which I thought slightly cringe-making sentence, but somehow, yeah, exactly, it did express that. And Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think we've lost? I mean, you say you think that the, you know, the age of screens is, is not just an intellectual problem, it's a sort of spiritual danger. Yes, I've got children of the modern era who've gone through that, and I really feel that... If, well, I mustn't say, but if this son had been born 30 years earlier, he would have written a whole James Bond script, um, which was he was about to do, and then Screen sort of somehow just dragged him away from that real inventiveness that he was just, just on the edge of having. And I'm sure that must be the case of many parents. So um, I do worry about the spiritual death. I, I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, although I know there's lots to be said for it, and they have great, great fun. Yes, I'm just thinking about those mad games, pointless games, like setting off your bicycle with one, one push and seeing how far you could get along the road without pedalling. Yes. Which kept some of our most intellectual people very busy. <laughs> well, there, there are some lovely instances, because your, your interviewees include... I mean, God, you've interviewed a lot of people for this book, but they include some relatively well-known people as well as some of the, you know, kind of ordinary uncelebrity Exactly, it's hard getting a random. It's hard getting a random sample, really. And I did want some famous ones, but I'm also very interested in normal people who didn't make a great success of their lives. Just so it's a trying to get a mixture of both. No, I love that you have an Archbishop of York explaining oh, yes. the ex- explaining the rules of a game whereby if you put a, you know, you get fined five points if you put a cricket ball through a window. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> they had to make up the game within the very narrow confines of a back alley. You had to make up quite strict rules about how you got out. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I've got to say, I also loved seeing the, the publisher, Simon Winder, who was a very Scottish person, saying that he was the, the only person who went home and actually read his entire school reading list for a bet. You say, it blew <laughs> his did. mind. Just, um, just an experiment, exactly. I think it probably made him the man he is today. But he actually did read the reading list. Most people were just haunted by their reading list, never went near the thing. 
but he actually read it. And yes. Thus the man who travelled all round Lotharingia to the most obscure castles. Exactly. He's kind of carried yes. on, hasn't he? <laughs> exactly. One of the things that comes through in this as well is thrift, in the sense that, again, it's, it's a peculiar meeting of the upper strata and lower strata. Lots and lots of these children's families were thrifty because they didn't have anything. But then the Tofts were also thrifty on principle, weren't they? I love that mixture. I called us, I, I didn't, my theme started to emerge as I started to interview people and I didn't really realise, I thought there might be one on sort of shabby clothes. I had to have a whole chapter called The Lack of Luxury as opposed to The Lap of Luxury because there was so much of this lack of luxury around across the classes. Um, you know, basically, as you say, posh tof, Tofts lived on, went foraging around the islands of winkles and grubs and certainly handed down clothes and, and, and sometimes given shabby cast-offs by old local old ladies. I mean, it really was, the, the doctrine of thrift absolutely fascinated me. And I felt it coming back this summer, definitely, when, during lockdown. I thought, ah, this is what it was like when you jolly well couldn't go to a restaurant, you couldn't go shopping, you had to take your ham sandwiches wherever you went. Ah, this was what it was like. I mean, by cutting off in 1980, actually, also you do overlap with the era of the supermarket, but not by that much. No, exactly. I remember Daniel Finkelstein saying the great moment for his parents was when they could cross the road and go to Brent, no, go to Brent Shopping Cross Centre, Brent Cross Shopping Centre without crossing the road. That was a great moment for his very thrifty parents in North London, um, who you know never really just never went abroad and just used to go little on to little cottages in Yorkshire and never spent money. Not only consumption in supermarkets, but eating out as well was not such a thing. I mean, I you know I'm, I'm very much towards the end of your period, but. You know, we didn't eat out as kids. You know, maybe if we went to the Happy Eater once a year, we'd feel very excited. You know, yeah, but... so exciting. I remember having such a tummy ache that I couldn't actually eat when I got there. Just so excited all day that you're going out this evening. And like that was very common. This once a year on someone's brother's birthday, um, you'd go out for this enormous, of course, much too big meal because they have three quarters and you had to have the peach melba and it came home absolutely stuffed. But it was unbelievably exciting treat. Um, and that was, you know, that was, again, part of this doctrine of thrift. But do you, th I mean, how much do you see the experience of British summertime for children, those summer holidays, kind of changing in the course of the time you survey? Yes, good question, because, you know, the, it, of course it did. I mean, we had the, the, the wartime, of course, very thrifty. And then, of course, we did have the beginning of swimming pools coming in. That it's a great moment when someone dug a hole in their garden, early 1960s. And, that was, <laughs> and the children had to carry the stones for days and days from one end of the garden to the other to dig a pool. And then, of course, came the kidney-shaped, bright blue swimming pool and the whole thing of temperature envy. Rumours that someone else had a swimming pool that was 80, got up to 84 degrees, when most people were, you know, 61, if you were lucky. And that, there was this gradual change towards dipping your toes into the world of consumerism. I think I suggested it started among the nouveau riche who were very very happy to try out restaurants and try out chicken in a basket in their new <laughs> exciting hamburger restaurant. There was of course you know during the Macmillan there was just a gradual shift towards doing more and then of course we get to the beginning of packet holidays. Well exactly and that I mean again what sort of time was package holidays to the continent really started to take off? I, well I think the early 60s was when I started hearing about it really that's when John Mullen, now an English professor of English literature, heard that the boys in his class were going to Majorca and he was only going to Shingley, Suffolk. And he said to his mother, Mummy, why can't we go abroad? Can we go abroad this summer? And she said, Darling, going abroad is vulgar. Oh, yes. I think Nicholas Soames says something similar, doesn't he? Yeah, Nicholas Soames said, Abroad? No one went abroad except to fight a war. <laughs> <laughs> Which is classic. <laughs> Um, so that was, yes, that was the 1950s for Nicholas Soames. The 1960s more, there was this beginning to be pressure to go and feel that blast of Mediterranean heat. And so do you think there's the core in this, in the summer holidays, 
of some of the things that absolutely transformed the country in terms of the way that as package holidays arrived, not only do kind of the seaside resorts start to fall into duessitude and end up in Smith's songs, but people started to eat different things as well. I think they said, and there was talking, the talk of beginning to eat exciting food and go to the Wimpy Bar and, and have a Knickerbocker Glory in central Birmingham, which one of my interviewers remembered with great excitement. There's a lot of, I hate to return to the sort of health and safety theme, but, you know, as well as dank sandwiches, violence seems to have been a major factor of the good old-fashioned summer holidays. Sibling violence for a start. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine, you know, you, you, were stuck, you really found your position in the family. That's why these positions in the family became ingrained, because there you were stuck. Like, there's a whole section of the book called The People You Were Stuck With. Again, that was a theme that emerged. I, thought I, I didn't realise I was going to have to have a whole chapter on siblings, another one on mothers, another one on fathers, another one on grandparents. All these people that became in, enmeshed in your summers. The, the bruises didn't only come from falling out of trees, they came from Chinese burns and being tied down to the cattle grid by your siblings. And also quite a lot of the trauma, Second World War trauma still going on, I heard. By, in the 1950s, people were still acting out Japanese prisoner of war camps and things and, and, and tying their siblings to a, a tree and digging a hole and throwing them into the pit and doing <laughs> dreadful things. Do, do you write all this down as character building? Well, I think so. Definitely, definitely made it give a kind of resilient, incredible resilience to people. I think perhaps, you know, some had an awful time being the bullied. I mean, imagine being the bullied youngest or oldest or middle sibling for a whole long summer, locked into a situation on a farm miles from anywhere where you couldn't see anybody. I mean, that must have been pretty dreadful. Well, did you find your interviewees who described that sort of situation? I mean, you've said there's a glow of rosy recollection, as psychologists call it, that governs a lot of the interviews you went through. Did you find some people saying candidly, you know what, I was absolutely traumatised and if I'd been able to sit and play Minecraft in a corner for my teenage years, I'd have been much happier. Yeah, well, I did have some people say, you know, I said you had, you had a predominantly outdoor childhood and they said, God, I wish I'd had more of an indoor one. I'd, I'd have loved that. And there were some who, I think, neglected children who really didn't have, didn't have love. I decided that, and I'm, that as long as you had some love coming to you, that's what mattered. It didn't really matter where it came from. It didn't have to come from your own parents. And often people had terribly unhappy homes with parents screaming and rowing and threatening and had children being shuttled from father to mother on a dreadful bus journey every Saturday. But as long as they had someone to love them, it made all the difference. Yes, you've got some very Roald Dahl-esque grandparents in here. Oh, yes, exactly. Yes. The one, well, who one, went to the one grandmother who alarmed me, so you had someone who said, Granny told me, you know, the problem with Granny was that she always ate our pets. That was a bit shocking, I must say, yes. Often people had one sort of more... One mad granny and one quite sane granny. And this was a slightly mad granny in Wales, I think. Quite posh one. They used to have to had rabbits. And then she used to go and say with the other... I think this person used to go and say with the other granny. And by the time she came back to granny number one, the rabbits had been eaten, um, put into the pot. Yeah. So that's, you know, grannies weren't very sentimental in those days. Exactly. The pictures of fathers you've got here, again, hmm. fathers of our generation do not get to be like the fathers of that generation. I don't think we'd get, get away with it. You wouldn't be able to take August off, would you, and go into your shed and expect lunch to be made for you, would you? No, not, not a hope. Yeah, and that really was the done thing, I think. And fathers got to the holiday, damp holiday cottage in some damp bit of the borders, got out the typewriter and went to the study and clack, clack away. And everyone else, mother, daughter, had to get the Argo working and make the Selkirk bannock and deal with the draughts, the dead moths, freezing cold. Yeah, I don't think fathers can get away with that now. No. I mean, do you see all that stuff as simply, you know, that's the way it was? Or do you think this was an incredible mm. period of women 
going quietly mad because well, like, they were mm. responsible for everything and Dad got all the credit. Dads were the more glamorous parents, weren't they? And I do say in an inexcusable way, this delineation of the sexes' roles sort of did make houses run smoothly. You knew who was going to do what. But it, it was, there was a lot of unfairness. I mean, hearing about it in Scottish that, that this vast gathering of cousins, that the, the boy cousins got the first bath and the girl cousins had to get into the bath, or into the boys' dirty water. And that was just typical everyday sexism. <laughs> <laughs> sort of patrilineage. Exactly, get into the heathery, brown, hairy, greasy water that your boy cousins have been in. Again, it was taken with a light heart, and I, did, you know, I think you know, one can get over angsty about these things. It was taken with a light heart, and I think everyone, in a way, got what they needed. I did hear some pretty grumpy mothers, though, just having to endlessly do the, to do the shopping. I remember talking to A.S. Byer about this. She, she said, just looked into the eyes, my poor old mother, she shouted, my poor little mother, she said, she shouted and shouted, you know. <laughs> Yes, awful. The hated one. Exactly. Not easy. Um, though I think that, you know, one of the things also comes out, fathers seem to have been more eccentric then. I mean, also the, the father's theories. You've got a whole sort of section <laughs> on the insane on theories, theories embraced by fathers. But I suggest perhaps because they've been in the army and they sort of learned to pick up theories, bits of wisdom that, that, that would make their lives and everybody else's lives easier, such as leaving a crack of dawn to get to the, to miss the traffic and uh, things like that. Um, and they were ruled by theories, and I, and I wondered why. And I thought there were also some grandparental theories too, such as my grandmother saying, "If you it doesn't matter your plimsolls get wet as long as you keep moving." Great theories that children brought up on. Yes, absolutely nonsense theories. But I suppose we've now got a different sort of category of daft theories because they, were, you know, from the internet. <laughs> exactly, endless wisdom. Father's theories will be QAnon yes. now rather than, <laughs> yes. than anything else. Yes. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to dwell on your sort of semi-celebrity interviewees, but you have what might be a psychological coup and you got a psychological scoop and you got Rachel Johnson to talk to you. I know Rachel's a very shy and retiring person who, oh, who doesn't yes, like to speak kindly. out, but did you get a sense from the Johnson family childhoods of, you know, any insights into the, the makeup of our Prime Minister? How do you think he's been shaped by his... Yes, well, I mean, certainly absolute shabbiness. I mean, the photograph is in the book of them, bare feet being yanking some clothes on first thing in the morning and getting out for the communal photograph looking incredibly ragged. Rachel did say we were hungry all the time, and I think she was worried that would be misinterpreted as my father couldn't put food on the table, which is not the case. It's just that they were, I mean, like all children, hungry. Um, because we were, we were, they were just, there was just enough food. They'd had to put stale, stale biscuits were put in the agar and warmed up, which didn't make them taste nice, just made them taste burnt. Um, and, I, and I did like about asking to Boris to play with them, and Boris just said, let's play reading. Ah, well, my little brother thought that his his name was F off I'm reading for the first few years of his life. So, <laughs> uh, we'll, I mean, one, one of the themes that, you know, does come through is this idea that, you know, a divide, if you like, between children who read, who binged the box sets of their time, I think you put it, you know, they get stuck into Willard Price and emerge at the end of the summer 14 books through, and the ones who didn't. Yes, I think the ones who didn't. It was hard for a non-bookworm. And, and, and I think so, there were some hovering, improving parents who refused to let their children read Ina Blyton. And I think that made for more boredom, definitely. And that, that's, So you're very lucky if you're a bookworm. And I, I was a, I'm also I divide the world between readers and re-readers. Um, I was a re-reader. I just read about three books till I knew them by heart. Which were those uh, books? Yeah, oh, oh and The Wolves of Willoughby Chase, Secret Garden, and A Myth of Lord Fauntleroy. So, I mean, I just, I just, yeah, knew them by heart. So, in a way, that's quite good, because then you do, in fact, have whole phrases that live in your head all your life. I ended my sister, who was a reader, and I became a reader later in life, but 
that there are these two there are two ways of approaching the world of books, one from repeat. And I suggest that repeat reading goes into repeat holidays because of course lots of families went on to exactly the same holiday, year after year, to exactly the same beach, not just the same beach, but the same spot on each beach, and stopped at the same lay-by for elevenses every year. Perhaps we're very much creatures of habit. I mean, do you think that's a positive thing, that, you know, going to the exact same beach, the same boarding house, the same campsite? I think children are more nostalgic than we like to give them credit for. They really do love to go back to the same place and get really excited about seeing a place they saw last year. Don't always need to go somewhere new. Perhaps that's another thing that we've lost because of this constant desire to colour in the whole globe with our children's travels. There's something amazing about going back to the same place and the rituals. The thermos got out at the same lay-by and the same, same fig roll dunked into the cup of coffee at exactly this time last year. What were your own summer holidays like? What's your, how much of your own experience did you put into this book? I did put in my yearning to stop at the um, service station on the M2 in Kent, which was called the Umbrellas, because it had umbrellas all the way along the bridge. And I just longed to go there and have, a, you could have fine views over both carriageways. But I think I just did a lot of cycling around my local town of Sandwich in Kent, a lot of drawing, a lot of just making a obstacle courses in the, in the back garden. But the fact that I find it quite hard to remember what I did day after day on the 15th of July, 16th of July, 17th of July, 1971, made me very admiring of people who did, who I did have to probe quite hard to say, what did you really do? Because it is more vague. In the previous book, Schools, it's far easier to remember because there's more trauma attached, I think. Those lost days are harder to recapture. Do you think being bored, I mean, being bored is one of the sort of hovering background themes of this. You know, you said this is about time. It's about... yes absolutely vast expenses of time that you kind of live in suddenly and yes. colonise. And you have to risk boredom every, in order to make the most of that. You have to wake up each day with that phantom boredom that you, you've got to somehow deal with, which I think perhaps we don't have now because we wake up and instantly scroll down our phones and that emptiness is not so much there to have to deal with. And do you think boredom is an, in, is an inspirer? I mean, I think it's sometimes been called the tenth muse, you know. Mm, yes, perhaps it does. And I think, you know, there were bad things about it too. There was, I, mean, I'm, do, I do remember friends of mine just saying, I'm bored. I mean, I don't think people say that anymore. I'm bored. And then you had just had to go and do some ridiculous game. Awful board game, of course. Board game. <laughs> um, which, <laughs> uh, with terrible, complicated rules, which I was, I was a bit of a disappointment and used to go on for far too long. So five-hour board games um, with an exciting picture of pirates on the box that actually is, turns out to be really quite tedious. Yeah. But, I, so I think you know, I mean, even Monopoly, which is, which is sort of hung on in there, is incredibly dull if you play it all the way through, isn't it? If you do it the right way, it's absolutely unbelievable. If you just literally start by buying Old Kent Road, the computerised version, iPad version, is so much better, isn't it? So much faster. Well, you see, I'm now pleased to hear you sticking up for computer games, because <laughs> I sort of wonder whether, I mean, as, as somebody who probably yes. straddles slightly the generation that did start mm. to get involved with computer games, I heard an echo when you saying, you know, there were parents who said, you're not reading Eden of Blyton, you know, it's, it's Euripides or nothing. That, do you think it's possible that when someone does the follow-up to your book in 50 years' time and they do, you know, British Summertime from 1980 to 2040 or whatever it is, that they'll say, you know, the great joy was we would vanish into these virtual worlds and be free and be creative and build what we liked and chat with our friends online... Rather than doing the even worse thing they're going to be doing in 2040. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. rather than yeah. plugging directly into some electronic drug. <laughs> exactly. Maybe they will, because I do see the fun they have with these games. I'm really not a total game snob, I, I promise you. I do really see that the fun the fun that my sons have playing virtually. I mean, during lockdown, they weren't allowed to see their friends, but they had immense fun just having these virtual whole days together. So it's not all bad. Do you think that the next few years it may be, you know, 
if the pandemic continues, it may be very hard, if not impossible, to travel to the continent. If Brexit goes right, we won't be obliged to or able to or have any money to. Do you think this could presage a great revival of the dank English seaside holiday and the you know, do you think this will be a great thing? We'll all start rediscovering Maybe. the joys of Margate. And the, and the sad seaside resorts will just come flickering back into life and be marvellous again with great letters along the front of the hotels, the grand. Wouldn't that be lovely? But I got a feeling that, you know, what we saw when lockdown ended was there suddenly was a, a just urge to go abroad. Not, not that I managed it, but lots of people did. No, I'm afraid there is still very much that urge to touch Greece, which I think we, now we've got, we're never going to lose. But, you know, that, but I, think, I do think we have discovered the joy of the British countryside. I have this year and then the cycling networks through Britain have been an absolute eye-opener and incredible and that's what I think perhaps lots of people have discovered that and I've seen more bicycles around than ever before this year so perhaps we are learning to kinetic stasis stay within a 12 mile radius but explore. Exactly. Did writing the book make you feel a little bit sad for what we'd lost? I mean, because it is so rosy and uplifting. And mm, Well, it did. And I said that the playing out culture died out in my own street here, which where there used to be a playing out um, children just from all the houses playing outside when I first lived here 35 years ago. And suddenly it just gradually, the main playing out family moved away and stopped appallingly. And the whole culture of it gradually stopped. And, and that's very, very sad. So I, I do feel sad. Where are they all? Is my penultimate chapter begins. Where are they all? I've ne- I've, in my walks in the countryside, I've never once seen an unattended child climbing a tree on his tummy looking for minnows, ever. And if you saw one now, would you, would you phone it in? <laughs> report it. I'd be thrilled, absolutely thrilled. <laughs> if I saw seven of them, I'd have to report it. Ms. Linda Maxson-Graham, thank you very much indeed for your time. <laughs>